This is episode 158 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Michelle Dawson. She is member manager of Heartwood Speech Therapy in Columbia, South Carolina, and a clinic coordinator for the MSLP graduate program with Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina. She is the acclaimed host of First Bite Fed Fun Functional, a speech therapy podcast that addresses all things pediatric speech therapy. She is also the author of the upcoming book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders. Michelle is an accomplished lecturer traveling the nation delivering ASHA CEU courses on best practices for evaluation and treatment of the medically complex infant, toddler, and child with respect to their pediatric oropharyngeal dysphagia, as well as language acquisition within the framework of early intervention. She has served as the treasurer for the Council of State Association Presidents, is a past president of the South Carolina Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, 2020 recipient of the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Awareness Champion from Feeding Matters, a 2017 graduate of the ASHA Leadership Development Program, and six-time recipient of the ASHA ACE Award. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. This episode is sponsored by Utterly Financial. Utterly is the company behind Craig Goldslager. Craig is an experienced financial specialist that works exclusively with us, SLPs, and private practice practitioners across the country. Over the last few months, I've received tons of favorable feedback from listeners who've contacted Craig in two main areas. Implementing high-quality disability insurance. SLPs get disabled all the time. Don't think it can't happen to you. You need a policy you can trust to deliver should the worst happen. He's also utilized his proven framework for buying or selling a mobile fees business or private practice. 98% of business owners do not know what their business is worth. Craig's process will help you receive fair and reasonable value for your practice. If you don't have a disability insurance policy or a roadmap for buying or selling a private practice, you should contact Craig today. Craig is opening up his calendar to listeners of the SYP podcast and offering a free 30-minute consultation. You should take advantage of this. Visit utterlyfinancial.com forward slash SYP to set up a time with him. Utterly Financial, U-T-T-E-R-L-Y-F-I-N-A-N-C-I-A-L.com forward slash S-Y-P. And I can personally attest to working with Craig and this guy knows his stuff. So reach out to him if you'd like to set up a consultation. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, love. Hi. Good. I'm so so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for joining me. I like how I'm waving as if people can see, but I can That's see okay. you. I know. I do that all the time. I, I like talk with my hands. I'm like, wait, but you guys can't see what I'm actually doing. Yeah. Oh, anyways, tell the people who you are, Michelle. Hi. Um, so I'm Michelle Dawson. Uh, I am the host of First Bite Fed Functional and um, fabulous, um, in my um, humble opinion, and it's an early intervention pediatric feeding and swallowing podcast geared towards bringing evidence-based practice to peds SLPs on the go. And I am also the clinic coordinator at Francis Marion University and have had this amazing journey pop up where I'm setting up the very first pediatric feeding and swallowing clinic at a university campus in the state of South Carolina. So Yay. Hi. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that just sounds like an incredible labor of love. Uh, um, it is. Um, it has been. I am overjoyed at the opportunity. And honestly, it's been an answer to a prayer because I've I've been a clinical supervisor for such a long time, but you can only mentor one student at a time and what best practices and PFDs are so complex. But this gives us an opportunity to 
mentor numerous students at one time and, you know, teach the courses and teach and bring the guest speakers in. So I feel like we'll have a larger net to make an impact. And that's, yeah, that's been an answer to a long time prayer. (laughs) So, yeah. Good. Awesome. Awesome. All right. What do you want to talk about today? Um, Pick a topic, maybe. (laughs) I'm I'm a jack of all trades kind of thing when it comes to tiny humans. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot, uh, whatever, whatever you want to. Yeah. Where should we, where should we start? So I was once upon a time, a diehard acute therapist. Um, my, uh, my CF year was setting up a inpatient outpatient clinic, inpatient services and an outpatient clinic at a rural country hospital that had never had a full-time SLP before. Um, So my CF mentor would come in um, once a quarter or once every three months and sign off on my stuff. But I went from spending my first two years being mentored by chief hospitalists, by the GI that would um, do surgeries, by the ENT that would pull me in and um, let me observe total glossectomies. And I would subsequently treat the patients to we moved from Virginia to South Carolina and I started working in early intervention and I did not want to work with kids. And the misconception is that our job is to play with babies, right? And bring a bag of toys in, which are germ warfare, non-evidence-based practice, but that's the misconception. And I got into it and I realized how much I loved it. And I took all the skills that I had picked up working acute with medically complex adults, beefed up my coursework, the CEUs that I attended, and then transferred that over to working with the least of these in the birth to five to nine population. And it was amazing how when I started telling people, oh yeah, I'm in early intervention, the reception was very, oh, you couldn't find a hospital job? And I was like, oh my God, no, yeah. no, I love this. You don't understand. There's kids out there that are not getting services and, and there's kids out there that, you know, they, they may get service once a month because they live so rurally and it's been a, a mission to bring evidence-based practice into the world of early intervention. And it started right here in little bitty Columbia, South Carolina, and then it grew from there. So, yeah. So, so tell me more about that, Michelle. So you mostly just treat pediatric feeding disorders in early intervention. Um, is that right? So I treat PFDs and then my second love is AAC for the medically complex. So I do a lot of the summer during the pandemic. I've worked with um, Wyatt. He's with Talk To Me Technologies. He's phenomenal. He and I have collaborated on several patients to set up eye gaze devices, um, to set up. Um, I'm a huge fan of LAMP language acquisitioning through motor planning and bringing the speech generating devices out because what I have found is a lot of times if the child's because of their neurogenic condition or their dual diagnoses, verbal speech, if, and when it comes, it will be much later. And, but they have a voice that they need to be empowered. I mean, the communication bill of rights says every person has the opportunity to share their wants and needs, right? Well, in early intervention, we don't necessarily think, oh, they're too young. We can't possibly bring out a speech generating device. And that's, that's erroneous. And so often what I'll do is we'll bring it out. And one of the biggest motivators for speech is food or the ability to tell you there ain't no way in H-E double hockey sticks, I'm going to eat that. And I need to be able to give the kid the capabilities to say no. And I feel like feeding and swallowing and AAC are the perfect opportunity to do that. Also, I'm very passionate about this because I have an adult I have a special needs brother-in-law who's um, Uncle Matthew Monster. He's adorable. He's 43. Uh, He has autism and CP and a cortical vision impairment. So I have heard the stories that my mama-in-law has shared of how much advocacy she had to do his whole life to get him where he is. And so it makes me advocate for AAC from a very early age within early intervention so that they are set for success for later on. 
And um, that's um, also not so common to see AAC pushed in early intervention. So we have to do more outreach. Have you heard of speech and language songs? I don't think so. Okay, Stephen Neese, he's adorable. He's an AAC SLP. He has a YouTube channel for songs that he's created for children with AAC devices to sing along to on their AAC devices. Right? I love him. And he's done a couple on eating. And it's just like, it's like the perfect hybrid of these two things that I'm really passionate about. And it's fun. And yeah, so like... The warm and fuzzies there. So, yeah, I mean, yes, cool. it's wonderful. <laughs> oh, I'll totally have to check that out. Yes, yes. Mm. All right. Um, so talk to me some more about some common misconceptions of PFDs. Ah, okay. Um, the one that I loathe the most is that it's all behavioral. <laughs> it's all behavioral. They're just a picky eater. Um, it's very frustrating to be told that repeatedly when you're seeing children with complex etiologies. There's one GI physician, um, and he regularly tells everybody that it's behavioral, it's behavioral, when we know for a fact that behavioral feeding disorders happen in less than 2 to 3% of the population. Feeding Matters has done a ton of research on it. Um, Dr. Kay Toomey, I had her on First Bite, like, January. She's brilliant. She's one of the lead psychologists in the world of PFD. She's like a pillar in the community. And she presented all of the data as to the why. And what we also know, thanks to research created by Feeding Matters, which is an international nonprofit that puts this holistic focus on evaluation and treatment of PFDs with an emphasis on parent and caregiver engagement, which is where it should be, we know because of their their advocacy that one in 37 children will have a pediatric feeding disorder. That's a higher prevalence than the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorders, but yet we hear about ASD and we don't hear about PFDs. And so we come across parents that have been informed by their physicians or their specialists, such as GI, that this is all behavioral and they won't send out for the diagnostics. So then inserts the well-meaning SLP who, after you hear this for so long, if we don't ask the why, and I hope that if somebody listening to this takes nothing else away, one, be joyful, be kind, and two, ask the why and advocate. Because when you do and you chase down the etiology, you find that typically it's multiple factors. I had one little guy a couple years ago. He was adopted from Bulgaria and sweet as sugar. This is a typical trajectory for my GI kiddos. He would eat more in the morning. And as the course of the day went on, his overall PO volume would increase to nothing, right? And every dinner was a fight. Every, every dinner, which is when you want to talk about your day with your family. You want to break bread. Okay, so what happened to you today? How was that spelling test? You know, those are common conversations. Anywho, I would come in and do therapy with mom in the morning. She's like, I just wish you would be here at night and see our tears. And I feel that because I, that's the walk of my families. And I'm very empathetic towards that. So by time we convinced the pediatrician to send the child to the GI at MUSC for an alternative diagnosis, and the child also had spina bifida, they found out that um, on x-ray, he was so impacted, it was pushing back into his um, stomach. And the reason he was spitting up, it wasn't that he was spitting, it was the stool literally couldn't go through. His whole trajectory change. This was not a behavioral feeding disorder. This was a severe neurologic impairment. Um, The enteric nerve system, nerve system of the GI tract was that compromised because of the level of his spina bifida that the outcome was biweekly enemas as well as like periactin, which is a GI stimulant. This required a medical team. And guess what? Once we got the poo out, and when you're in the world of pediatrics, you're going to talk more about poop and vomit than you ever thought that you would. Once we got the poo out, I came back like two weeks later and he goes, Miss Michelle, I am so hungry. Let's 
do this. And I was like, like, yes. And then once the kids to the point of healing, then you can go in with like all of your great strategies, like the SOS approach, the get permission approach, the food chaining. I mean, you can do that because you've gotten your tiny human to the point of healing. But I feel like I feel like for whatever reason, we're not conveying that diagnostic, the value of the diagnostics out in our peds dysphagia classes. If you have the opportunity for a peds dysphagia class in grad school, and often you don't, right. but if like, Sarar, get a second opinion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we had maybe yeah. like three classes about it as part of our like bigger dysphagia class. So, um, I got like a night, yeah, dude. Yeah, 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 that's about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. But they, uh, very few classes are actually, or colleges are currently still treating a standalone PFD class. And if they are, it's an elective. And my worry is that individuals that want to go to the school may not consider that they need to focus on PFDs, but our babies are going to school and they have to be fed at school and you have to come up with a comprehensive team to address those needs there. Oh my gosh, Emily Homer. I love her. I fangirl her. She's a she's an ASHA fellow. She has done several lectures for ASHA about the um, the resources available to SLPs working in the schools if you're working with an individual who has a PFD. So I would highly recommend anybody out there, check out her work, but, um, she's just graceful. And I'm like, Ooh, I need to learn more from her. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I love what yeah. you said, Michelle, about, uh, you know, figuring out that that kid had an actual like medical condition going on, because I think that's, and it's, and it's not like, it's not our fault. I don't think, but it's like, I think the disservice that it's done that we, we have just this very focused speech and language training and very little actual medical training. You know, I think that's the difficulty of then just yes. throwing people that have speech and language training into a very complex medical setting with very complex medical kids is there's just so much that we don't know. And and it's like, you know, I, I, yes. I don't know how you're supposed to learn all that stuff other than, you know, just having you know, externships in children's hospitals or, you know, acute care hospitals, but we all know how rare those are and completely non-existent during COVID age. (laughs) Um, I am trying to place students for practicum sites. So people take my peoples, but like it's, it's hard. And, and, and so that was, that was a topic. That's a topic that just came up. That's like super near and dear to my heart is clinical supervision. I was, ASHA has a lot of resources available for clinical supervision, but I had a terrible experience where I was bullied and belittled at a hospital and I've got pretty tough skin. I did all of that and survived all of that while I was going to grad school. I could handle all of that, but going to a practicum and being bullied by an SLP who was supposed to mentor me, that's the part that cracked me, right? But that's the part that inspired me to be a clinical supervisor and to advocate and mentor others, right? So when we know that we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic and yet we are still graduating clinicians and we are still expecting them to walk out the door and eval and treat these individuals, then we need to put forth the um, extra volunteer work. And it is volunteer work and it is tithing of your time, but like we need to supervise and mentor the next round of clinicians because if it's not us that one day they're going to treat if they're not treating us, they could be treating our children. And that was my son. I mean, Bear has had, he just graduated speech therapy, but he was born with hearing complications and needed Arctic phonology, expressive language therapy, and a lot of aerodigestive tract surgeries. And we all survived. There was a point to that tangent, but I've lost it. Bottom line, be a clinical supervisor. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good, that, that's good, Michelle. That sums it up. <laughs> There it is. Uh, I should have gone running before we recorded. It would have offset my oh, ADD. That's, right. that's okay. <laughs> yeah, we're fine. All right. So let's talk about being a silo SLP in the world of early intervention. Mm, that sucks. That's your humble pie right yeah. there. I, because I came, and I think I internalized it even more because I came from an acute care setting in the morning with a 
dash outpatient in the afternoon where um, I was it. I was the only one. Everybody came to me for all the things, right? So I had to know everything. But I also had, I had the distinct advantage of being able to walk around the corner and ask the hospitalist what was going on, right? So I still had this impression in my head that it was up to me to make the final decision, right? So when you transition into early intervention, early intervention may be the hardest setting I've ever worked at. And I've worked them all, right? Because we don't get medical records. That's the caveat. You walk into a door with a script that says speech therapy, eval, and treat. You're lucky if it says dysphagia because I've had six-week-year-old babies um, or six-week-old babies, and it says speech therapy, eval, and treat aphasia. And I'm like, we're going to work on seminomia today. But like, no, right? You don't get medical records. And then you may not know when you walk in that the child has I had this happen, little one had Down syndrome and he already had a G-tube and we had all of these other factors going on. You're flying blind and have to reach out and pull this information in when you're working in homes and thriller populations, families that may be bilingual that you don't have access to an interpreter. You may be working at an inner city because Columbia is, Columbia is very unique in that we have city, not like New York city, but like it's the state capital. So we got the city, but then 30 minutes out, you're actually on tobacco farms, right? And I traveled the gamut, but you're working with families that have lower socioeconomic status in the city with racial biases and tensions towards their plan of care that are well known and you have to fight, but you, we have a tendency to internalize this, that this is my cross to bear. I have to come up with the resolution. I have to give the diagnosis and I have to come up with the treatment plan because I don't have access to a competent team. But when you do all of that from the framework of speech pathology only, you are missing the root cause. You are missing doing the root cause analysis. And I am so grateful that my um, my husband and I eloped um, uh, 11 years ago in January. Yay! Um, but uh, Christian's equality, his background was Army Infantry and then um, quality engineering because, like, life, right? So he always says, well, what's the root cause analysis? And I love that he challenges me like that to figure out, okay, well, what's really going on with the case? So it makes me look holistically at the child. Are we having um, signs and symptoms of torticollis? Okay, so torticollis is technically shortening and tightening of the sternocleidoid mastoid. But if the child has torticollis, how is that pulling the child's larynx? How is that impeding their root reflex? All right, if we can't naturally root to one breast or to the bottle, I mean, there's, there's carryover considerations. Is that also a red flag for cerebral palsy? Well, if we're looking at that, then that gets me to neuro. And then what's going on with the innervation of their GI tract? Oh, well, I hear a tiny strider or strider. All right, well, do they purr like that when they're in the car seat? Do they snort at night? Because now you're looking at an aerodigestive tract. I can't fix any of those etiologies. I have to make the referral to the ENT, to the neurologist, to the GI, to the OT, to the PT. Well, is their root reflex not engaged because they're not seeing what's coming at you? Often the private practice EISLPs become, if we don't practice as a silo therapist, we become the source of all of these referrals. And I remember thinking one day, how come the NICU SLP didn't catch this? And, oh, I wish I could go back and shake the anger and frustration off of myself that day. Because when I reached out to the NICU therapist afterwards and was like, well, why didn't you? And she goes, no, 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 no. It's not a why didn't I? It's a why didn't they? We raised the red flags for this, 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 and this. But the kid was a feeder grower working on weight gain to meet discharge qualifications and the neonatologist did not want to send out for neuro-ophthalmology, didn't want to send out because it would add time for them being in the NICU and the ground 
the team's decision was they could follow this up upon discharge. And that was absolutely mind-blowing because, I mean, I was new to EI and I assumed incorrectly that all of this was done before they came to me, not knowing that, my God, their hands are tied just as much as my hands are tied. And then that led me down like a whole nother advocacy initiative. But we can't be silo SLPs. You cannot build and implement a quality plan of care until you understand what's going on with the child. And that won't happen overnight, which I think is where you see burnout and fatigue with EI SLPs is because we're exhausted fighting for records. We're exhausted for going into homes and parents saying, where's your toys? And then it's just frustrating to see colleagues think that our job is just to play with kids. So it's a lot of education and advocacy because I feel like I've done a lot. This might be the hardest gig. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I that was a big soapbox. No, I'm sorry, <laughs> and I and I totally super appreciate this. I think you know the hard part for me is being Teresa SLP, but then also mom of a kid with special needs and living the NICU life and all that stuff. And I think what what I think what really makes a good therapist to me is one that does reach outside the box and look outside the box and say, you know have you guys considered this or have you considered talking to this doctor or have you considered this specialty and all those things, you know, yeah, it sucks. And yeah, we don't have time for 97 appointments a day, but it at least makes me realize that this person realizes that there might be something going on with this child that just playing with a toy can't fix. Like, and, and I think that's what I, why I got so frustrated and, and I mean, people know I went through a streak of firing probably six OTs in a row. Um, but it really just came down to, okay, well let's, we're going to play with this toy. And I'm like, what is that toy? Why? What does that have to do with the big picture? Well, and, and if you can't explain it to me, then don't do it. Right. <laughs> and, and I think just, you know, from a parent's perspective, it's like when you have so many therapies going on, like I want to know that each therapy is going to count. I know that not every day is going to be perfect. I know not every day is going to be the most picture perfect therapy session, but I just want to know that we're working towards a bigger picture goal, you know, and that, and that's really what as a parent makes me respect other therapists more than others is ones that really talk about the big picture can tell me why we're doing certain activities, what they have to do with things. And, you know, it, and, and I feel like as a therapist, if you don't know what the activity is doing, figure it out, like <laughs> do some research before you bring it into my home and, and experiment with my kid, you know? Yes. yes. Uh, so I had that moment. I was the bag of tricks therapist. I was the chewy tube person and I was the Z by person, but I can pinpoint the day I had this sweet baby girl. Um, she passed away about two years after, after this day. And she was on her little beanbag chair, um, beautiful blonde hair. And I was in there and I had my vibrating stick and I was rubbing her faces, right? Like we're rubbing each cheek. And the mom goes, why are you vibrating her face? And I was like, I'm waking the muscles up. And the mom looked at me. She goes, honey, that baby's awake. What else are you going to wake up? And I was like, oh, snap. Yeah. And But it was that moment that I was like, okay, but what am I actually what am I bringing to the table and how does this carry over into something functional? And, and I am so grateful that that mom asked me the why, because when I couldn't answer it, I realized I had room for process improvement. And that's when I started big time reading journal articles on non-speech oral motor exercises on central pattern generators and how you have a central pattern generator for sucking, for mastication, deglutition, and respiration, and they emerge in parallel, but they don't all overlap. Some of them do, but the central pattern generator for mastication talks to the CPG for deglutition, which talks to the CPG for respiration. If you teach a chew in isolation, then you've only taught a chew and you have not taught the body how to control the bolus for the swallow to prep for respiration. So as opposed to teaching 
an isolated muscle movement, up, down, up, down, up, down. When I introduce an advanced viscosity, I do a controlled bolus trial. Um, uh, have you seen the Boone net feeders? I don't think so. I don't know. Oh my God. I love these things. Okay. So like the original net feeders were cloth. Oh, is that like the, know the is- kind of like suck the food through it? Like, okay. Yeah. yeah through okay. the whole thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So hang with me. The original net feeders were like the net cloth. But if all you know is like a bottle nipple or a booby nipple or a pacifier, binky, my family calls them binkies. Um, then, and somebody shoves like a wet net in your mouth, like that's a little sensory unpleasant, right? But the boon net feeders, the surface is the same texture as the other nipples that um, most of our babies know. And then I am big on, I don't place food in a kid's mouth unless they physiologically cannot get it there themselves, I hand over hand or get permission and allow the child to feed themselves. Everybody, here's your homework assignment. I want you to go home and have your mate um, feed you something. Okay. Because if I, if somebody takes away your oral prep stage of your swallow, you don't know where that bolus is going in your mouth. You don't know the volume of liquid that's getting poured in. You don't know which side it's going in. And that completely sets the rest of the stages for the swallow for failure, right? That's what we're doing to our tiny humans when we're like aggressively shoving food in their face, right? Also, everybody has a chew dominant side. So take a bite of something. If you're driving, please don't do that. But like when you put food in your mouth or a piece of bubble gum, everybody naturally chews on one side. We have our own mastication pattern and that's beautiful our tiny humans are evolving their mastication pattern. It starts with a phasic bite, which is um, if you've ever breastfed and around six months of age, nipple hits the mandible at just the right point and the baby chomps down on your nipple and you're convinced it's never going to look the same afterwards. Like one, after you breastfeed, they never look the same, but like two, um, that's, that's how, you know, they're starting that first chew pattern, right? Phasic bite. Then we go to the vertical chew and then that turns into a transitional chew with a little bit of lateralization and the rotary chew, the rotary chew doesn't happen until the child is developmentally around four years of age. Most of the tiny humans we treat we're not expecting them to have that chew pattern, right? So I'll slowly increase the viscosity of food, giving, borrowing Marsha Dunn-Klein's approach of like giving, letting the child give us permission and then put the advanced bolus in a boon net feeder so that when they're working on the chew, the consistency that comes out meets their in between national dysphagia diet and itsy level, like a a three, a puree, right? But like transitioning up to like a four. And I feel like I have to code switch national dysphagia diet to itsy because like some hospitals I work with are doing itsy and some are still on NDD. So it's, that adds a layer of confusion to it. But I have seen that approach by allowing the child to feed themselves and slowly advancing the viscosity of the food naturally that and hitting their right flavor pattern. That just it opens the doors for these kids to increase the quality and pleasure of their PO. But that's something else that's fed is fed is fed is fed is fed, whether that be TPN, NG, OG, orally, G, G, J, J. If the baby's not being nourished and by the baby, I mean, my babies are five and seven and they're still my babies, right? If a child's not being fed, we cannot ask them to do and participate in occupational therapy, physical therapy, to meet their academic cognitive developmental norms because their body's malnourished. So we have to remember that every child's destination for the PFD journey is very different, and we have to celebrate all the wins along the way and I mean, some kids, yeah, you're going to totally transition off of alternate means of nutrition. But some kids, yeah, you may just need that for a little bit of extra hydration. And some kids, hey, we get to have three bites at dinner with the family, and that's huge. But all of that is huge. And that is at the heart of what we do. And now my Irish eyes start leaking. <laughs> but like, yep. Yeah. I get it, Michelle. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, this, mm-hmm. this is a good segue into talking about the mm-hmm. importance of advocacy. <laughs> oh, 
Yeah. Um, okay. So my, my, my family's from White Oak, Virginia, which is literally a holler. Um, I come from a proud line of bootleggers, um, which is really funny because we were um, bootleggers, cops, and nurses. So the old family motto was we'd lick you up, pick you up, patch you up, put you back out, right? <laughs> so explains a lot about my family. Um, but with that, with that comes mountain wisdom, right? So when you see a problem in the world, you can gripe and fuss and fume about it. But with your next breath, you have to work to resolve it. Because if you have the energy and wherewithal to raise awareness about a problem, then step it up and work to fix it, right? And I, yes. And well, that's why we do the thing that we do love, like, because yes. And so when we moved to South Carolina, I was working with a little one, um, so this was like seven years ago and his early intervention is the state of South Carolina has um, their EI system. The birth to three um, is called um, IDA part C is called baby net. And I was called in to eval and treat um, or a pharyngeal dysphagia. They actually spelled it right. I thought that in and of itself was a win. Um, and uh, the early interventionist turned to me and goes, um, okay, so what goals do you have? And I was like, okay, so the goals for the IFSP plan are very different than our plan of care goals, right? When you're writing your plan of care goals, they're super technical because they go to the physician. When you write a goal for the IFSP, they have to be presented in family-friendly words, right? So I said, all right, well, we're going to do oropharyngeal therapy and work on increasing PO intake. Let me tell you how to translate that for your IFS peoples. And she said to me, you can't write a goal for that. You're going to have to write an oral motor exercise goal. And I said, oh, honey, you and I are going to agree to disagree. And she goes, we don't treat dysphagia because you're not a feeding therapist. And I'm not even making, like, she literally was that salty to me. And I was like, what? I was like, I am a feeding therapist. I'm a speech pathologist. And she goes, honey, that's not a feeding therapist. And I was like, okay, so backtrack who told you what a feeding therapist was right <laughs> she goes baby that told us so i called my count one of the ladies i knew who worked at the office up there and i was like so how did y'all decide the definition of a feeding therapist and like the early interventionists i love them they're phenomenal but they were like psych majors early childhood sped majors ed education majors not a single otpt speech person on board and they said oh well we sat around in a meeting one day and came up with the definitions and i was like and your resources were what and they were like oh, mic drop like nothing i'm like okay we have a problem so the good lord introduced me to all these amazing women and I ended up getting involved in um, SCISHA, the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. And full disclaimer, I'm past president. I'm no longer on the board. It was a great five years of my life. I'm happy um, to pass the baton off to those that follow. Here's the catch. People, and I was one of them, complain that, well, why doesn't ASHA fix this? Why doesn't ASHA fix an issue? Number one, ASHA pays to have national level lobbyists. They don't engage at the state level. Your state membership, your state association pays to have a state level lobbyist, okay? ASHA can give us guidance, they can give us position statements, and they do, and they come and they meet with your state association, typically um, a couple times through the year via phone and twice a year. But it is your voice and advocacy at a state level that changes those policies. So I started volunteering with Skisha, and it took two years. And I got the text message from um, uh, Daniil, who's mentored my soul. And she said, just got the update. Baby not passed. We're officially allowed to eval and treat oropharyngeal dysphagia. It took two years. Two years of volunteering and meetings in order to get the approval to treat what is in our scope of practice. Then it took two more years to be able to accurately CPT code it. Afterwards, they were like, oh, that's 92507. I'm like, oh, 92526. Rawr, right? And so we had to fight to then even accurately code the thing it is that we're doing. But I wouldn't change it because I know, I know that what we did was right for our state 
And yes, it was a lot of meetings. I canceled patients. Um, we were able to bring good to the world. And, and that was that was a team effort. And that's why advocacy is important. I mean, we've got ongoing issues. Every state early intervention system has ongoing issues. We've got issues right now where somebody somewhere interpreted IDEA Part C that you can't do a co-treat with a fellow therapist, which is inaccurate. I mean, I got to know what the OT's doing. I got to, I mean, if the OT's working on um, uh, physical cueing to engage like the palma reflex to help the child hold their bottle or help hold their spoon, that definitely carries over to PFD. If they're working on how you present a cracker so that we can work on the pincher grasp, well, that's important for self-feeding. And if you're telling me that you're not going to reimburse us for our time because we're not allowed to co-treat, then that's a deficit. That's a patient safety issue. And at the end, that's what it boils down to. All of these factors are patient safety. So advocate. So one, be a clinical supervisor. Two, join your state associations and advocate. Those are, those yep. are good takeaways, yep. right? Totally. Yay. Yep. All right. Well, that's yep. a good segue into the vital need for EBP clinical supervision. Oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Okay. So I'm in this weird position now where I still can't believe that this is the life I get to live. It's amazing. Um, I get to serve. I am now the clinic coordinator at Francis Marion university and it's a new program. I mean, we're only three years in and in that role, I am acting as external clinical practicum coordinator, as well as serving as a clinical educator for patients, for the students that I'm setting up the PFD clinic with amongst like 14 other hats that I wear there. But it is very difficult. I know I have to have the students have their practicum experiences, right? But I am also very protective because I feel like they're my kids and they're not like technically my kids, but like they are, right? I want to make sure that what they're going out and witnessing is actually evidence-based practice. So can you tell me what approach you're seeing? I mean, if you're seeing mild electrocution on an infant's neck via some circular pads, then I have a worry on my heart because that is not evidence-based practice. We don't electrocute the tiny humans. Um, and if you're going out to a, a hospital where they don't have a Fraser-free water protocol pro like implemented for our adults and they're not doing aggressive oral care, then I have another concern, right? So, but the catch is it's really hard to find, it's hard to find individuals who are willing to take on one more thing onto their plate because it's one more thing and we're all treading water because of everything that's going on in the world right now, right? But we we need that because once I send a student off campus and they see a practitioner engaging in non-speech oral motor exercises, or they hear this, and I will go ahead and say this now, they hear, oh, the mom's complaining of uh, nipple pain with breastfeeding, we're just going to go ahead and get their tongue tie cut. That's, that's a problem because I have to work harder to undo the damage that's been done because individuals are not always forthcoming with the, their evidence or they present snippets so you get like a partial picture as opposed to like the full picture, um, which is very frustrating. And uh, if you can't tell me the why, you can't present to me the research article or tell me how you found it or the book that you read or the course that you took, and it's actually valid. Because let's be honest, not all courses are created equally. <laughs> and that sucks. I hope I'm not one of them. <laughs> but like, that's, then that's a problem. And also, we have got to get out of SLP research articles only. Like, folks, we got to research. We have to read the research that's being presented from neonatologists, from otolaryngologists, from different disciplines. And I love reading research that comes from the framework of multidisciplinary um, approach. That's 
why I love volunteering with Feeding Matters because they bring the subject matter experts in from like all different disciplines, GIENT, PT, OT, Psych, um, the National Dysphagia um, Research Society. I mean, you're, you're talking like the great minds in our world are tackling things across the life continuum. And it is from all of the different wheelhouses. That's the stuff I want in my toolbox when I'm walking into somebody's home to work with their little one. Yes. So evidence-based practice is key. I agree. Are. I, I agree. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. what I love, well, I love a lot of things that you said, but what I, <laughs> but I think, you know, it comes back to both of us being Nikki mamas and understanding that. And I think as much as we have to read evidence outside of just our field, you know, read these other journals, read, you know, communicate with other professions. To me, I think, you know, we have this evidence-based triad and a lot of people just want to harp, 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 harp on the evidence, but there's also this other patient perspective. And there's also this family perspective and what their goals are. And I think so many times we lose sight of that. You know, and there's so much more to just treating the patient based on, or our tiny humans based on what a research paper says we're supposed to do. What do our colleagues, our, our other professional colleagues believe? What does the family want? How is the patient responding to the treatment? And to me, that's what really embodies evidence-based practice and what I think, you know, we need to teach our, our younger clinicians more about too. So, yeah, I feel like, I feel like the triangle should have a heart yeah. in the middle of it. Yeah. Like really truthfully, because I know we know we're do no harm and everything. I can't say multisyllabic words because like yeah. our take is hard. Right. And I don't do that therapy, but is it like yes. yeah. bene- beneficence <laughs> yeah. with that word? Yeah. Okay. Again, I work on the swallowing, not the Arctic. Dr. Angel is there for that, but it's the intersection. I mean, it's the heart is the intersection of that triangle. If you walk away and you're feeling icky, if you're looking at this kiddo and you're and you're seeing if you're seeing a regression in skill set, a plateau in skill set, a communication breakdown with the family caregiver that is keeping you up at night or a communication breakdown with the physicians that's keeping you up at night, or something doesn't feel right, mm-hmm. then you need to reassess what you're doing. And I feel like, I really feel like that triangle should have just like a big old heart because every piece intersects there. Yeah. I think, you know, it's just, it's obviously my whole world was flipped upside down with having to deal with my son, but what I'm grateful for is how it's helped me professionally too, you know? And all the evidence in the world, sometimes there isn't a research paper for how to treat that. So what do, what do you do in that situation? Yes. Like shit. And, and we can't help you? No, that's not the answer. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, when you, that's when you call a, a mentor. That's when you call a team meeting. And I've had those meetings. And I've, I've been the person that says, okay, something has to change because what we're doing is not working. And I have had mom say to me, the only reason they even caught my little one's diagnosis is that they overheard a colleague having a conversation about a conference that they went to, or they saw this one, one outlier in a research article and they picked up the phone and they sought that person out, right? It's, but that's one of my favorite things in the world to do is to connect connect people to other people, right? Um, uh, Ooh, Malcolm Gladwell. He's got this book, um, The Tipping Point. Um, I love Malcolm Gladwell. Like he's, the man's brilliant, but like, and and he's, well, he's written a lot of books, but one of them, he talks about this personality character. I think it's the magpie. I mean, there's drawbacks to the personality character, but like that person goes through and they connect individuals. And so when you have the opportunity, Hey, I'm working with a a little one that has this unique case, reach out HIPAA compliantly to someone else who could might have seen a case similar or might have experience with that and, or call the team meeting and sit down with pediatrician. I've gone to doctor's appointments. So, Mm -hmm. all right. Any final thoughts, Michelle? Be kind. Yeah. We don't know 
We don't know what's going on in that family's world and where they are in their grief cycle, working with their little one, trying to get them fed. We, we don't know where the other clinicians are and their learning stage. We don't know what trigger points they're going through. And we don't know how intimidated the physician could be by working with a subject matter specialist, because that can also be overwhelming. A lot of our, our pediatricians are generalists. As such, they should be. I need a great generalist to recognize signs and symptoms to then make the referrals out, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. But when they're engaging with someone who knows a lot about a topic, they may feel intimidated and threatened versus us feeling intimidated and threatened that we're calling somebody who's got a longer alphabet soup, right? A bigger shtick. But like, so just choose kindness. And and remember, there is joy in everybody's journey. So when you're there, yes, sit with the mommies, hold their hands, let them cry it out. I have done that so many times, but also you know, giggle when the kid farts or when they celebrate the little victories and enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. You're so wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for yeah, all that you do for our, our field. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.